Let's open up with order prayer. Thank you, God, for this time together this morning as we draw together with our brothers and sisters to come to your house that we have set aside with your people to praise and to honor you, to sing praises to you, to open your word, Father, to learn about you and to get to know you better. And Father, we're just so thankful that you have opened our eyes and that we are able to see clearly who you are and Father, may you give us encouragement today through your word that we may be drawn closer to your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Before we begin our lesson, I want to ask you a question. If you had an unbeliever come to you and they told you that they wanted to begin reading the Bible, they wanted to get to know what this Christianity thing is all about, where would you tell them to start? John. Oh, wow. Everybody agrees. John. I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer to that question, but a lot of scholars would say what you say, that they would say the Gospel of John is a great place to begin to get to know Jesus and to what Christianity is all about. I think this actually John's Gospel is actually written with an unbeliever in mind. If you turned over to John chapter 20 and read verse 30 through 31, I'll read it for you. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have a life in his name. So John's gospel, he tells you specifically why he wrote the gospel of John. And his purpose was so people could know Jesus Christ and that by knowing him that they might be saved. And as you study the Gospels, you'll find that John's Gospel is noticeably a little bit different than the other ones. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what theologians call the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means written to get to see together. They are very similar. They're distinct, but they're varied, but they're more similar. John actually is a little more different. He has a lot of things in his Gospel that weren't in the other three, that they're unique to his Gospel. And this week, we're going to be looking at one of those unique encounters. As you remember, we've been starting on a series of encounters that Jesus had with different people in the Bible. And last week, we looked at the man named Nicodemus as he encountered Christ. This week, we're going to be looking in John chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at an encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well. So you can be turning to John chapter 4. There's a lot in this passage. There's a lot of different directions you could go with the teaching. We're not going to cover all of the verses of this. We're going to primarily look at the first 15 verses as Jesus encounters the what we would call the Samaritan woman. So if you're taking notes, my outline for today is going to be broken down into three sections. We're going to see how Jesus interacts with this woman in three ways. First is that Jesus is purposeful in his dealings with this woman. We're going to see that Jesus is indiscriminate in his dealings with in his pursuit of this woman. He's purposeful in his dealings. He's indiscriminate in his pursuit. And then third way, he is openly reveals himself to her. So let's begin by Jesus is purposeful. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says that, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
as I began studying this, I always begin by asking myself questions. And the first one that pops up comes right off the bat. It, you know, it says that he left Judea in verse 3 and went into Galilee. So I asked myself, why did he leave Judea and why did he go into Galilee? And as you start reading that, you know that you realize that it had something to do with the fact that Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more people than John the Baptist was. So if you go back and you start looking at the chapter before this, chapter 3, you'll see that John the Baptist's ministry was still going strong. There was actually two ministries going on. John the Baptist's ministry was still going on and Jesus' ministry was still going on. Verse 24 of chapter 3 tells us that John the Baptist had not yet been thrown into prison. So John himself had already baptized Jesus at this point. Verse 30 and 31 of chapter 3 tell us that John tells his followers that he, meaning Jesus, must increase and he must decrease. But at the point where we're at in chapter 4, John is still baptizing people, but Jesus, not Jesus himself, it says, but his disciples are baptizing more. More people are now flocking to Jesus than to John. And that bothered the Pharisees. One might suppose that Jesus might have left Judea then out of fear, right? Right? No. Jesus didn't do anything out of fear, did he? Did Jesus fear the Pharisees? No. Did Jesus do ever do anything out of fear? No. Of course not. The verses right before chapter 4, verse 35 of chapter 3, tell us that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. That would include the Pharisees. He was not afraid of the Pharisees or anyone else. Later in John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down upon my own accord. Jesus was in control. He wasn't afraid. So then why did this news about the Pharisees cause them to leave Judea and head to Samaria? As I studied this, I came up with three possible reasons why Jesus may have decided to leave Judea, and I think they're all three at least partially correct. First, it was probably an issue of timing. All through Jesus' ministry, especially as John recorded in his Gospels, there were times when it looked like Jesus was about to be arrested or about to be killed. And what does the Bible say happened? Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. Sometimes he would just, you know, walk through the crowds and leave because it was his hour had not yet come. One of those instances is recorded in John 7, chapter 7, verse 30. It says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, when Jesus is basically teaching that he is God, when he says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. Also, that kind of stirred up the crowd a little bit when he said that. And verse 20 says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus was keenly aware of the ministry and his timing that the Father had for him. And his time had not yet come. So this was most likely, in part, one of the reasons why he left Judea. Second, some suggest that he may have left because the Pharisees, and this one I hadn't actually really heard before, but I came across this in some of the different commentaries I met. They suggested that he may have left because the Pharisees may have used the popularity of Jesus to discredit John's ministry. Remember, the Pharisees had hated John. They didn't like him. He confronted them and he condemned them and he had called them out. He cried out to them to repent and to be baptized. So now there was this competing movement that could actually discredit John. They could pass him off now as kind of a fad. You know, he's fading. He was just a fad. We don't have to be afraid or fear of him. 
And thirdly, in addition to these reasons, Jesus may have left because he may have felt a divine impulse to go to Galilee by way of Samaria because he had a divine appointment there. Look at verse 4 of our text. It says, And he had to pass through Samaria. And he had to pass through Samaria. Did he have to pass through Samaria? No, he didn't have to. All of you all own GPSs, probably many of you. You have them on your phone. You can program your GPS to go the shortest route physically by the number of miles. You can program it to go the quickest route, take the big roads, stay off the little roads. If you're like me and you're cheap, you program it to not go through toll roads because you don't want to pay tolls. So you know there's different ways to get from point A to point B. So did Jesus have to go that way? No, literally, he did not have to go that way. So we look at that and we say, why did he have to? And I think that kind of leads to a purpose that Jesus had. And if you look at the word had to in there in the Greek, it comes from the word dia, D-E-A, and it's used five other times that John uses it to speak of Jesus fulfilling the mission that God had given him to do. It's rendered must many times. He must do this. Uh, one of the places, just to give one example, is chapter 314 where it says the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's the same word. That had to happen. That was a divine happening. It had to happen. And I think this points to the purposefulness of Christ. He purposed to go to Samaria. If he was leaving because his hour to go to the cross had not yet come, or if he was leaving in order to not discredit John's ministry, or if he was keeping a divine appointment, in fact, I think all these things are partially true, then all of that shows a purposefulness in Christ's actions. And as you think about Jesus' purpose in going to Samaria, and we see these different purposes that may be involved, we're reminded that God is not singular in purpose. When you think about how God works everything out for all of us in multiple different ways, it blows my mind. It boggles my mind to think how God takes hundreds and thousands of events and things and twists them and turns them, and they all go to where He wants them to go. He's multi-purposeful. And as we think about that, though, we don't see Christ reacting to circumstances, do we? We see him causing the circumstances to benefit what his purpose is. Sometimes I find myself praying, Lord, if there's someone I need to witness to or someone you want me to help, put them in my path, open the door. And I think that's a good prayer. But I, when I think about the application of this as being purposeful, sometimes I think God wants me to purpose the encounter that we're going to see here with this woman. To initiate, not just wait for something to happen. Jesus didn't just wait for this to happen. He purposed for it to happen. He helped that a divine appointment happen. And I think as you think about application, I think that's one of the things I was convicted of, is that I need to be more purposeful in my dealings with unbelievers. Sometimes I think, oh, it's up to God to bring them in. It's up to God to make them say this, to make me, you know. Jesus didn't do that. His example is that we are to be purposeful in our dealings with unbelievers. You all are probably not as bad as me, but <laughs> I know I'm going to embarrass myself here, but I was in Publix one day a couple of months ago, and I saw somebody that lived close to me. I avoided them the way because I knew this person was a talker and I didn't want to get in a conversation at that moment in time. 
I don't think Jesus did things like that. <laughs> I was convicted after it happened that I wasn't purposeful. This is a person I should be trying to build a relationship with. This is a person that I should be ministering to because I know they are not saved. And that's one of the things that really convicted me out of this first point is that we should be purposeful in planning encounters with unbelievers. And Jesus did that because he was all about doing God's business. And sometimes I'm about doing my business. So how do we practically do this? You can do this by thinking purposefully. You have to think about it. You have to plan for it. You have to work out your plan. You have to act on it. It means inviting somebody over for dinner, inviting somebody to play cards. It's creating opportunities for encounters with unbelievers. That's what Jesus did here. We live in an age where everyone is very busy, and it seems like we spend half of our time just getting through the day and reacting to circumstances, and I don't see that in Jesus' life. I see Jesus' ministry based around being purposeful in what he did. Now, we're not Jesus, and we don't have control over everything the way that he did, but I think if we're truthful, we have to admit that we could control probably more than what we do, and I just I think that's the challenge for us. So the first thing I see, even before this encounter takes place between the Samaritan woman and Jesus, is that Jesus is purposeful and his dealings with this woman and everyone else. The second thing I see is Jesus' love is indiscriminate. Let's read verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John adds, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So if you were here last week, you'll remember that we looked at the encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. As you study this, you can't help but see the contrast between this Samaritan woman and Nicodemus. What was Nicodemus? What kind of a person was he? Pharisee, a ruler, a religious ruler. What kind of woman was this? Probably an uneducated peasant woman. What about financial standing? What was Nicodemus? Probably very wealthy. This woman was probably very poor. He was a social elite. She was a downcast of society. What did he think about Jesus? Who did Nicodemus think Jesus was? He thought he was a great teacher. What does this woman think about Jesus? She has no clue. She has no clue who he is. So you see just in the comparison between chapter 3 where Nicodemus and chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman that just right here we see a blatant example of Jesus' love is indiscriminate in who he ministers to. These two encounters that happen at the beginning of Christ's ministry make it crystal clear that Christ is no respecter of persons. God's love transcends all barriers of race, gender, ethnicity, financial standing, religious tradition. There's no prejudice in God's love. It's all-encompassing. Now, as we've noted, Jesus' purpose to come here to Samaria, and we've all heard about the conflict between the Samaritans, or we probably have all heard a conflict about the Samaritans and the Jews. Verse 9 makes it clear that this is true when the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me... For a drink, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John adds that to make it clear. Why was that? Why did the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other? 
Now, we all know a little bit about that, but I went back and just kind of wanted to make sure I knew the whole thing as what was going on here, so I researched that a little bit. So, where was Samaria? Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. This was the time where the kingdoms were divided. You had the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. In 2 Kings, we're told that the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. And many of the Israelites were carried off and exiled. And the king of Assyria, what he would do is he would take off all the strong and the better looking and all that. And he would carry them off. And then he would bring back from Babylon and other cities people and settled them down into the city of Samaria. So eventually these foreigners intermarried with the remaining Jews and became a race known as the Samaritans. So it was a mixed breed race. That's one of the reasons they didn't like each other right there. The new settlers brought their pagan religions with them. They became mixed with the Jewish religion. But over time the Samaritans actually gave up their idol worship and they worshiped Yahweh alone. When the exiled Jews returned, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, Their first priority was to rebuild the temple. And actually, the Samaritans actually offered to help. They said, we'll help. We we serve Yahweh. We'll help you. But they refused. The Jews said, no, we don't want your help. We don't like you. We don't want any part to you. So that kind of fueled the fire a little more. So what did they do? They went out and built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which the Jews a few years later destroyed. So you see this feud building over the years between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the feud went both ways. It wasn't just a one-sided. The Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. If you turn back to Luke chapter 9, there's a passage in Luke chapter 9 that kind of shows this. I'll read verses 51 through 56 of Luke chapter 9. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem. And verse 52 says, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. 53, verse 53 says, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Why didn't they receive him? Just because they were going to Jerusalem. That's the reason. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Uh, But there's Peter and John. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So this account clearly shows the animosity going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. It also clearly shows Christ's indiscriminate love. So back to our story. Jesus purposely plans a trip through Samaria. Samaria was the capital city, but it was also the name of the region of Samaria, which would include other cities. One of those was, had the name of Sychar. And that's as he nears that city of Sychar, this is where the place where the encounter is going to take place. Verse 8 tells us that he sent his disciples away to buy food. Why did he do that? They were hungry. Multipurposeful, right? They were hungry. It was dinner time. Why did he have to send all of them? He purposed to make a moment of encounter where he would be alone with this woman. I think that's important to note. He could have sent a couple of them to buy food. He didn't have to send them all. So he did that so that he could be alone to talk with this woman. Another point of application for us, there are times when we need to plan to have an encounter with someone. I don't know how many times my wife and I have talked and said, well, did you share the gospel or did you do this? And I was like, "Ah, it was never really a time to be alone. You know, I just really didn't have the opportunity. I, again, this may not apply to any of you, but I, again, am convicted that I need to plan encounters sometimes with people that I know I need to be trying to witness to. Our text tells us at this time it was the sixth hour. 
So it's either 12 noon if John is referencing the Jewish time or it's around 6 p.m. if he was using the Roman time. We don't know for sure. I believe personally it was 6 p.m. If you've been to Israel, you know that you have a very hot climate. 12 noon would have been right in the middle of the heat of the day. I side with the scholars that believe Jesus sent the disciples away to buy food for dinner. He knew this woman would be coming after the heat of the day went away. But regardless, that's not really an important fact. So Jesus then, he goes up, he sits on the wall or on the well or right near the well. He can't be missed. He's right in her target of where she's going to be coming. He sits on what they call Jacob's well. If you've been to Israel, you know that they have found a well that they feel pretty confident is Jacob's well. It's about 100 feet deep, and it has a Catholic church on top of it, which is what most everything artifacts in Israel have. So Jesus plops himself down right there on the well, and there's no way she's going to miss him. He's totally unavoidable to her. Then what does he do? Verse 7 says he asks her for a drink. I couldn't help think about the history of our country and the discrimination we went through as a country. I didn't personally experience it. I was teaching this lesson in another class where some people that were much older than me had lots of stories to tell about discrimination and how when they were kids and young adults, you know, they had to drink out of this water fountain and the black people had to drink out of this water fountain and a black person couldn't use this restroom and a white person could use this restroom. And it's a sad but true example of discrimination in our own country. So there's nothing new under the sun, is there? It's, it's the same old stuff. Well, Jesus, knowing all that has gone on between the Jews and the Samaritans and being a Jew himself, he sits down and asks to drink directly from her water bottle. He didn't have a cup. He didn't say, pour me a drink. He said, can I drink from your cup or your bucket? Her response shows her surprise. She says what? How is it that being a Jew asks me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And John adds, because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The emphasis here was Jesus being a Jew and her being a Samaritan. But there's a lot more going on than that. It's also culturally incorrect for a man to speak to a woman in public, especially a teacher, a rabbi, speaking to an immoral woman. According to them, he was defiling himself by doing that, especially by drinking from her cup. That would have been a defilement of the rituals that they would use on cleansing and those kind of things. One of the commentaries I read, the word that's used where it says no dealings is actually sometimes literally translated to mean using the same utensils. That was one of the big issues here was that he was using the same utensils as this woman. But this was not unusual for Jesus. I went back and read some other scriptures like Luke 7 where he touched a corpse. They would have said that defiled him. Matthew 8, he touched a leper. That would have defiled him. But we know that he was not defiled, but he actually the opposite occurred. He made what he touches clean. So we see here very blatantly that the love of Jesus is totally indiscriminate. So then when we come and think about application to that, it's obvious that we need to love indiscriminately as well, but we don't have Samaritans to love, but what are the ways we might discriminate in the church today or as a Christian? Is there still racial discrimination that goes on? I think so. It's probably not as bad in the church as in the rest of society, but there probably is some that happens occasionally. What about social status, social discrimination on social status? I don't think it's necessarily always intentional, but I think it happens. 
Terry and I have an example in our personal lives that I thought about this. A few years ago, we were, in, when we were living in Kentucky, we started a bus ministry. And we were bringing lots of underprivileged kids into the church. Probably a busload, 35 kids were coming to a fairly small church. And as you can imagine, 35 underprivileged kids from unruly homes and situations coming into the church was kind of disruptive. A lot of the Sunday school teachers got upset. A lot of division actually occurred because somebody would be missing something they'd blame it on one of the bus ministry kids or somebody's parents would say my kid got hit or this happened or whatever and there was just a lot of issues around this and I understand that I understood that we were sincere those of us who started this ministry and we had the church's blessing when we started it but it became an issue of, of controversy we were very sincere, though. We were ministering to the families. We were taking food. We were doing Christmases. We were ministering and trying to minister to the whole families. So we were very sincere. But I'm not naive, and I understood the problems that it was caused by it. But what bothered me the most was the pastor came to me one day, and he sat me down, and he said, Mike, we need to talk about this bus ministry thing. He said, our target audience is middle-class white people. That's what he physically, the pastor told me that, that our target audience is a middle class white church. And it actually wasn't a bad biblical church. Um, I've got a lot of good friends that go there today, but it, that pastor, because of the controversy that was involved, his idea, what well, he was into the church growth and that type of thing, and he just felt like, you know, they probably would fit better in this church, and this group of people fits better in this church. And we, I was a young Christian. But it didn't take the rocket science to figure out that's not what the Bible taught. That the love of Christ is totally indiscriminate. Can we, as individuals, be that way? Maybe not that blatantly, but we can sometimes maybe not be as comfortable with a certain set of people. Maybe that's out of our comfort zone. And we might need to have to strive to overcome that or to go out of our comfort zone to befriend and minister to certain people because they're not as like us. I mean, isn't it natural to befriend the people that are more like you and a lot of the things you have in common? There's nothing wrong with that, but that's the natural instinct. But I've even heard within our young groups here at Lakeside that some people in young groups don't feel like they fit in because there's cliques here or cliques there. I think we have to fight against that. We have to be indiscriminate and we don't have to just constantly be around the same people all the time because that's who we identify with. We need to be indiscriminate. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that Jesus is purposeful in his dealings with this woman. He's indiscriminate in his love. And thirdly and most importantly, he begins to reveal himself to this woman. Let's read Verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. 
I think it's interesting. Jesus does not really give her an answer to the question that she asks him about, does he? She asks him about this wall between the Jews and the Samaritans, and he kind of avoids that. I think he says to himself, I've already answered that by the way I've behaved, the way I've acted, the fact that I'm here, the fact that I'm asking you for a drink. He's already broken down that wall already. Now he turns his attention to the more important matter. In studying Jesus' response to people, I'm always amazed at his insight. Just like in Nicodemus, Nicodemus never really asked him a question. He made a statement, and Jesus then says he answered him. He basically tells him what it means to be born again. He cuts to the chase. Jesus cuts through all the bull and answers what's most important. What he does here is he turns the table on her. When we began this encounter, who was thirsty? Jesus. Who had the water? The woman. And now it's the other way around. He speaks to her as if she's the thirsty one. And he has the water, the living water. So he turns the table on her. Verse 10, he says, Jesus answers her. Not her question about why is he even talking to her at all, but he answers her according to what he knows she needs. And what does she need? She needs him. She needs Christ. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He totally turns the table on her, just like he did with Nicodemus. And we, we know that she doesn't really understand what he's talking about by her response, just like Nicodemus didn't. She says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The water's deep. Where do you get that living water? But in her defense, she did sense something deeper because verse 12 says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and he drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Are you greater than him? So she's correctly sensing that Jesus is making a deeper statement than what she perceived. And that is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that I'm superior to Jacob. My water's superior. My well's superior. My sons and daughters are superior. That's exactly what he's saying because they are eternal. He says a whole lot in his response. At first she has an understanding that he's revealing to her that the water he offers is eternal life. She's thinking about physical water. He's instructing her about spiritual water. Jesus is revealing to her the nature of eternal life, that it's a gift, that the one who drinks from it is the one who will really be satisfied. So again, like Nicodemus, she's taking it in, but she's not totally getting it because she says, give me this water, give it to me. I won't be thirsty anymore. I won't even have to come here anymore. This is similar to what will happen a little later on in Galilee. Remember when Jesus was teaching about the bread of heaven and he said, give us this bread? The disciples said, give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to be will never hunger. It's similar to that statement. And what he's doing is he's beginning to reveal himself to her. We don't have time to go and read the whole rest of this section, but jump down. Just skim down to verse 26. You're going to find that Jesus, after turning the table on her, he begins to expose her sin. And that's what a person has to have in order to be saved. You can't just have a little bit of knowledge. You have to have your sin exposed and see your need for a Savior. And that's what happens. And how does he do that? He asks her in verse 16 about her husband. And that starts the questioning that exposes her sin because she knows that the man she's living with is not her husband and Jesus knows that and that begins this whole series of questions that she understands that Jesus knows her heart and knows what's going on. She senses that he's a prophet and that begins to unravel the sin that's in her life. And that's what has to happen for a person to become saved. It's worth mentioning here that we can't hide anything from the Lord, can we? 
There's nothing in our lives that we can hide. We can hide things from our spouses, our family, our friends, but we can't hide anything from the Lord. I was thinking of Hebrews 4.13 that says that there is no creature hidden from His sight, but everything is laid bare or laid open before the one whom we must give an account. So as you continue looking through that, you'll see that He reveals Himself when He says, she says, I know that you're the Messiah in verse 25 that the Messiah is coming. He, she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And then verse 26, Jesus flat out says, I who speak to you am He. He reveals Himself openly to her. Now we could spend a lot more time, another week or two, looking at that, but I just want to flip down to verse 39. Verse 39 through 42, it says, From the city many of the Samaritans believed in Him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, and he stayed there two more days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So Jesus sought out this Samaritan woman. It appears that she believed, and because of her belief, God used her to bring others to faith in him. But I want to focus on the application here. So far in this encounter, we looked at the fact that Jesus was purposeful in his outreach and that we need to be purposeful. We've seen that Jesus was indiscriminate in his love and we need to be that way towards all people, no prejudice. And then we see that Jesus reveals her need for himself as their Savior. And how did that apply to us in our dealings with unbelievers? Again, when I teach, I'm really almost always teaching to myself. So my application is from what I gain. And what I gain from this is that a person has to be exposed to Christ in my outreach or I have not really done a good job. Have you heard of things like lifestyle evangelism? You witness by the way you live. You've heard of the saying that you are the only Bible some people will ever see. There are great truths in those statements, but think about this. If you only witness by the way you live, that's a great testimony. It might draw somebody to the, like the way you live. But if they never hear about Jesus, have they really gained anything? How's a person saved? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. So the Word of God at some point has to be delivered to a person. And this is where I fall short many times. I do a really good job of lifestyle evangelism. I want to glorify Christ in the way I live. But not always does that translate to another person as to why I live the way I live. If they just see that I do this and I do that and I don't do this and I do that, they might just think I'm religious. And they might even want to be more like me, be more moral. But if they don't know that the reason I do that is because I'm a Christian and I want to glorify Christ, and if they don't ever hear the gospel, that doesn't translate into salvation. So Jesus, in his example, brings this lady along to the point where he reveals himself to her. And that should be our goal for all of our dealings with unbelievers is get them to the gospel at some point. Now, it may take a long time. It's not that it's done the first time you meet someone. But eventually you have to either share the gospel with them yourself or you have to encourage them to read the Bible or you have to encourage them to listen to verse-by-verse ministries or come to church to hear Pastor Steve. At some point they have to come in contact with the gospel or your ministry to an unbeliever falls short because they can witness your life all their life. But if they never hear the word, they don't have the opportunity to come to Christ. 
So I think that's important as you think about that. They need to know what we do and why we do what we do. Jesus is the true friend of sinners. He's our ultimate example in how to reach out to the lost. In this passage, we learn that we need to be purposeful, we need to be indiscriminate, and we need to lead them to the message of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our our time together this morning. Thank you that you led us to Christ, that you opened our eyes, that you revealed to us the true nature of Christ, the true nature of ourselves and our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. Father, we pray that in our dealings with unbelievers, we can model more after Christ. May we be able to step out of our comfort zones more willingly. May we purpose in our encounters with unbelievers to be purposeful and, Father, to be able to share and to reveal what we know, what Christ has done for us, and be able to share that in a natural way. And, Father, we are just thankful that you have given us this opportunity this morning to open your word, to learn from it. May we apply it to our lives and be more like your son. It's in his name we pray.